regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-term conversations with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of career. My guest today is Dr. Chen Pingyu, the co-founder and CEO of FIRE, a company that is bringing human life perception to every vehicle with the advanced language spatial AI. Prior to founding FIRE, he was a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University, researching neuro-inspired deep learning. Uh, Chen Ping received his PhD from Stony Brook University in computer vision and machine learning, and his master from Penn State University. Uh, he was the recipient of numerous honors and awards, including from the NSF, and has published more than 15 scientific publications at top computer vision, AI, and cognitive science conference and journey. So Champing, it was my pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. While doing the homework for our conversation, I believe that you immigrated from Taiwan at the age of 14 to go to boarding school here in the US. So can you share a bit about your upbringing as well as your decision to study abroad? Right, so I grew up in Taiwan. I was born in Taiwan. And I went through all the usuals in Taiwan, for example, the low hours and also the after-school academy, cram schools, all the examinations, all of that. To me, it was quite normal because that was my world. Everybody around me was doing the same thing. So it's how my life was in Taiwan. And I had a couple of friends who immigrated in, uh, to the U.S. right around when I was 10 or 11, and I kept in touch with them. I remember there was a summer where my parents took me to America to visit them and also for vacation. And that's when I understood how their lives were in the U.S. And also, I really enjoyed the atmosphere here. And that's when I think my parents saw that hmm, that could be an interesting change for me. And therefore, they started looking into the possibility of sending me to school in the U.S. I'm just curious, how was your experience at boarding school? Is there any cultural shock or what are some of the biggest challenges as you adopt to the new life here in the US? Right. When I went through all the process of transferring to schools in the US, there were two options that my parents were thinking about putting me through. One is to have me live with my relatives in the US and, and go to a school here. And the other one is to put me far away from my relatives and through boarding school. The final decision was they wanted to put me far away from all the relatives and for, from any of the relatives and have me go through boarding school because they really wanted me to be more immersed into the environment. And they're also worried that you know, if I'm kind of still living with my relatives, it may not give me a full U.S. experience. Yeah, therefore, I went to boarding school. And that was very interesting because I think I went to a boarding school in, in the East Coast when I was 14. And I think my closest relative was in Tennessee, which is very far away because my boarding school was in Connecticut. And I just had to learn to live on my own right starting the first day. I remember initially 
I was very worried how I can pick up English and really learn and communicate with everyone. But it turned out because I was young and therefore it was quite easy for me to pick things up. So in about half a year to a year, I felt pretty comfortable and I made friends and it was good. Yeah, for sure. I think that being early, immersion that experience really allows you to kind of understand more of the US, both from a cultural perspective as well as from the academic part of you, I assume as well. Yeah. Yeah. Then you got your bachelor and master degree in uh, computer science from RIT back in the early to mid 2000s. Could you mind sort of going over your overall experience at RIT alongside some of the early exposure to academic research in computational neuroscience at the University of Rochester? Right. So RIT was where I went to college. So RIT is not a very big research school. They really emphasized in practical education, where part of it is their co-op program, that you are required to intern or to do co-op at companies for, I think, five semesters, part of the graduation requirement. So I learned a lot at RIT. And toward the end of my bachelor's year, I enrolled into more specialized courses, such as artificial intelligence, and computer vision. And that really broadened my view and got me interested in computer vision, machine learning, AI-related topics. Um, At the same time, because one of my co-op was done at University of Rochester Computational Neuroscience Lab to supporting the lab in terms of writing software for their experiments to model human visual perception. That's when I kind of thought it would be interesting to combine computer vision and human vision modeling into something, maybe a single project, maybe something like a computational approach to to modeling human visual perception. So that's why I proposed to my professor at RIT in computer vision and my co-op advisor at University of Rochester to see if there would be such a project opportunity. And they were both interested And therefore, I started doing my master's at RIT in computer vision, but also with a focus in modeling human visual perception. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just curious, like, you know, what are some of the type of classes being offered in machine learning computer vision back in the early 2000s? Yeah, I think time is very, very important here because early 2000s or mid 2000s, computer vision was something people had done, but it wasn't something popular at all. Totally unlike today where computer vision is really big. So at that time, AI, artificial intelligence, was also not something big either. It was more statistical machine learning. And in fact, AI, the word AI now is very, very popular. But back then, people don't use that word very often. When people think of AI at the time, they think of conditional statements, a lot of if-else to set logics, but not something that we think of today, like deep learning-based AI. So therefore, the courses were really school-dependent and also professor-dependent. Some prof- it really depends on what kind of research that professor was doing, and then that professor would teach that side of his, re- his or her research as part of the computer vision class. So in my scenario at RIT, my computer vision professor, Dr. Kaborski, he had an interest in biologically inspired computer vision, meaning really building computer vision based on more about how human perceives things, less of the statistical machine learning approach. So that had a lot of influence in terms of the content that was being taught in that class. And also kind of primed me for my interest in a more 
bio-inspired approach toward computer vision. So that was what I learned at RIT mostly. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for sharing the context of the condition and how you get into become interested in a lot of your later research on, right? So you mentioned a little bit about you know your master thesis, the RIT. Essentially, it is an effort to design and implement a computational model of neurons from the visual cortex, medial superior temporal area. Can you share, you know, if you recall, can you share a little bit about some of the details of this master thesis? Sure. So like I said, because my computer vision class RIT was a lot of biologically inspired methods in doing computer vision. And therefore my master's thesis, that was a collaboration between uh, my advisor at RIT and also my advisor at University of Rochester. And therefore it was a computational method of modeling the biological visual cortex. And at that time we were not modeling human visual perception. We were modeling a monkeys. And therefore at University of Rochester, they were actually recording the neurons firing rate of a monkey's visual cortex neuron by presenting some visual stimuli to let the monkey see, and then they'll record how their neuron were reacting to these visual things the monkeys were seeing. And then we would then take those data and try to build computational models to be able to model these data. And that's what the thesis is about. So we actually built a model that was based on mixture of Gaussian model and combined with neural network and we trained it using monkey's neuronal activation profile. And then we used that model to predict how the artificial neural network would process if given different kinds of visual stimuli. So that was definitely very interesting work that we did back then. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that details. And I think that is like one of your earliest in-depth research on the sort of intersect between neuroscience and NML, which we're going to touch a lot later on throughout your research career. But before that, in the late 2000, you um, got a master's degree in computer science and engineering at Penn State University. There, you were a graduate research assistant at Penn State's Laboratory for Perception, Action, and Cognition. And you also work a little bit at the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon. How do you compare your academic and research experience at Penn State to that of RIT? It was a very, very big change for me going from RIT to Penn State. Because RIT, like I said, is not super research focused. They were more focused on the practical aspect of engineering. And therefore, I think a lot of the courses that I took at RIT was more about use cases, applications, than the theory behind it. I mean, it's not to say that they didn't teach theory, they did. But the, the emphasis was not on theory. The emphasis was more on the practical use case side of things. So when I went to Penn State, Penn State is, is a primarily research focused school. And therefore, the theories are definitely very, very important compared to the flip side of what RIT was focusing on. So I think when I got to Penn State, I remember at that time, I, because also when I graduated from RIT, I received an Outstanding Graduate Student Award. So that kind of gave me a big ego boost. I felt like, wow, I know a lot about computer vision. I know a lot about artificial intelligence. I'm going to Penn State. I'm, you know, I, I already know a lot of stuff. But when I got to Penn State, I started taking the classes at Penn State pattern recognition, computer vision, statistical machine learning, I realized I know nothing. Wow, I cannot believe I did not learn any of those theories before. And these are so completely new to me. And I had to actually make up a lot of the foundations that I did not have from IIT. Um, a lot of statistics I have to make up, a lot of probabilities, a lot of linear algebra. It's just a lot of the 
mathematics and statistics, that's very, very important to the foundation of computer vision and of and artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I would almost put it as a culture shock to me when I got to Penn State. That really opened me up to the field of, how to say, major league computer vision and machine learning. That's super interesting. You know, machine becomes super hot these days, right? So a lot of people study for this. Let's say advice for newcomers. How important do you think someone should get a solid, like, you know, a theoretical background? studying yeah. some of that if they want to kind of have a solid career in this field. Right. So computer vision, machine learning, artificial intelligence. I think what people, what a lot of new students don't realize is AI is really an application to statistics. I will almost say that because the traditional machine learning are, are mostly based on statistical methods and probability methods. It's about estimating uncertainty, about how certain is our model able to say that this is a dog or this is a cat. So this is really all about statistics. And recently we're talking about deep learning, but these are also kind of under the big umbrella, I would call under the big umbrella of, of statistical machine learning. And therefore it's very math heavy, it's very statistics heavy. People should try to have a good foundation in statistical mathematics in order for them to do well in AI. Yeah, I see. Yeah, having the fundamentals are uh, key if you want even expose them in the later branch of that tree later on, right? Mm -hmm. At Penn State, your master thesis proposed a statistical asymmetry-based automatic brain tumor detection from 3D MR images. So yeah, would you mind kind of sharing the background of this brain tumor problem and, and some details of the methods developed in this thesis? Sure. So my work at Penn State was primarily focusing on brain tumor segmentation. And so during that time, I worked extensively with neurologists from the Penn State Hospital to go through all the brain MRIs to understand what brain tumors look like on MRIs, to segment them, and also design algorithms to automatically segment brain tumors. That was very interesting because I was looking at brain tumor pictures every day. And I'm happy to not do that anymore. It's, it wasn't very, I mean, it's MRI images. It's not terrible, but also not super pleasant either. The idea for us to build brain tumor segmentation algorithm was that, you know, another culture shock that I had when I got to Penn State actually was, I remember I was introduced to this project and my advisor at the time was telling me, Chimping, I need you to become the expert and state-of-the-art in brain tumor segmentation in the next three months. And I'm thinking, wow, so many people are working on brain tumor segmentation. I just got here. I'm just starting my studies. How am I supposed to beat all the experts out there and achieve state-of-the-art in three months? And then I realized that's what research is all about. When we're publishing papers, doing research work, it's all about building state-of-the-art methods, having accuracies that's on top of everybody else's. And that was what we needed how we needed to perform in order to publish. But anyhow, so at that time, I was really getting a better understanding of how computer vision really is all about from a non-biologically inspired method approach, a more statistical machine learning approach. And that, I didn't have a lot of ideas at the time, but I remember during one of our lab meetings, one of our lab mates was presenting their blob detection for crowd counting and tracking type of tasks. 
because people are like kind of blobs if you're looking at people from top-down view. So that's when I thought that's interesting because brain tumors are kind of like blobs also. Mm -hmm. So if you can use blob detector to detect people and, and track them, maybe I can also use blob detector to detect brain tumors mm -hmm. as a rough localization and then to fine tune and get its shape afterwards. So that's why that formed my main research direction was to design a blob detection based tumor segmentation methods. And that turned out to work pretty well and became a thesis. I see, yeah. What are some of the big challenges of handling 3D images? Oh, right. So 3D image, the challenge is when you're doing blob detection, you are performing really like a template matching of a blob through the whole image to find which portion of the image looks like a blob. And that is actually convolution. You're convolving a blob filter with the image. And convolution is a very computationally intensive operation. When you're doing on 2D, it's already pretty expensive. And when you're doing convolution 3D, it's even worse. That means for you to process a 3D brain MRI with a 3D blob filter to perform convolutions with, that can take days to finish. And the 3D MRI isn't even that big. I think it was maybe 225 by 225 by 225. So part of my work was to find out how can we speed that up to make it not days, but maybe hopefully hours or even minutes or seconds. And that was part of the novelty in my work was I was able to came up with an approach of a 3D blob detection to process the brain to get tumor segmentation done accurately, but also to finish with all the convolution in only about two minutes from originally dates. So that also started my interest in efficient computer vision, making sure my methods are quick, fast, and efficient. Yeah, for sure. And convolution, I think most people know later on, become the fundamental building block for ConvNet. Yeah. And yeah, even your work these days with uh, you know, really focus on sort of efficiency and making things work with fast inference, right? So we will touch on that later on in exactly. our conversation. But before that, between 2010 and 2016, you went to Stony Brook to get your PhD in computer science. There, you spent time as a graduate research assistant at the computer vision lab and the eye cognition lab. When you look back on the arc of your PhD experience, what is the thread that ties your research together? So... After Penn State, I was looking for PhD opportunities. And because of my background from RIT, that was heavily tied with biologically inspired methods to modeling, to computer vision, as well as computational models of biological vision. That's why Stony Brook took an interest in me because my then Stony Brook advisors, Dr. Zalinski and Dr. Samaras, they were collaborators from the psychology department and from the computer science department. And Dr. Greg Zalinski, he has a computational background, but he works in cognitive science, in human perception. So he thought that, oh, my background in my experiences in modeling human vision is directly relevant to his research. And since he's also collaborating with Dimitri Zamaris, who is my Stony Brook computer vision advisor, so he thought that, I mean, both of them, they felt that I could be a good addition to their labs because they had collaborations ongoing. They jointly offered me 
the PhD opportunity at Stony Brook. And therefore, I joined both of the labs, working on both computer vision and modeling human vision. So, and because of that, in fact, I had to do kind of double amount of work because even though my main degree was in computer science, computer vision, but because my co-advisor, Greg, was in the psychology department, so I also had to do a lot of work over there. So I had to publish both in the computer science conferences, such as the main ones you've heard about, you've heard about CVPR, ICCV, CCV, uh, NIRIPS, SML. These are the computer vision side, but I also have to look at the psychology side, such as journal vision, psychological science, visual cognition, you name it. But it was very, very fulfilling to me because I was able to work on both. And a lot of times my methods, the methods I came up with were able to apply to either direction. So it wasn't exactly two separate paths. They were very synergetic. And in a way, it helped diversify my time at Stony Brook. So it was very interesting, actually, through that five years of time. I love that word synergy you mentioned, because I think PhD can be a lonely experience. And so just being by nature, having you know, different academic focus, it seems like you kind of have to interact with different people as well, right? And right. yeah, I mean, from what you said, it sounds like a very demanding period of time. Like, girls, like, how do you, you know, finding balanced time and being productive as a researcher, especially given the fact that you work on both of these disciplines? Yeah. So as a PhD student, you really had to have a lot of passion in what you do. Because for me, I didn't have a lot of balance. I kind of just spent my time in the lab and I only went back home to sleep. And I didn't take a lot of vacation time either. I think I spent most of the Christmas, most of uh, New Year's at lab, just working through, which is to me, it was just another day because I really enjoyed working on the research projects that, were, that I was working on. It's like playing game. You know, if you're into games, you play game because you like to do it. If, but, and, and I was doing research because it was entertaining to me. So it was fine to me. But now I think back, you know, a little, I do feel like I literally spent 99.999% of my time in my lab, in my chair, my desk, in front of my computer. I spent 0.00001% of the time on a basketball court playing basketball. Otherwise, there's nothing else. <laughs> and maybe I should have tried to allocate more time for leisure, but it is why it is. Yeah, it is great. Um, funny how I can just looking back and reflecting on, on how things could be different. But, but I think like, you know, that the commitment to research and then really focus on what you want to do, really you kind of set you up later on in your career as well. So I think like it's important, especially for younger researcher as well, to kind of cultivate that work ethic what you mentioned. Yep. Yeah. Your PhD dissertation at Stony Brook is called Computational Model of Visual Features from Proto-Objects to Object Categories. And specifically, it focuses on models with emphasis on visual clutter perception using proto-object segmentation and categorical search with category-consistent features. And these are two important problems in understanding human visual perception. So yeah, can you provide a background overview of these two problems? and summarize the novelty of the two biologically inspired models developed for John Let me see how to summarize them because they're not that easy to be summarized. But I think during my PhD focus on the computer vision side, I was mainly focusing on an unsupervised way of learning how to segment an image. 
And once the image has been segmented, it's broken into parts that are visually similar to each other. What we then call it as proto-objects. But proto-objects means they could be objects, but they could be object parts, or they could just be things. Say you look at the forest, an image of the forest. And if you look at that image, you're trying to segment that image into objects. It becomes kind of ill-defined. What do you mean by objects? Is a tree an object? Or is it a group of trees? Or is it a leaf? Or is a rock an object? Or is it not? So, you know, in, in those kind of natural imageries, the notion of object becomes ill-defined, or at least difficult to be defined. And that's why we thought that then instead of objects to quantify things in the image, proto-objects could be the right level of detail because proto-object would then mean, just means regions of similar visual features. So that could include a rock, that could include a piece of leaf or a tree, it depends. But then it, I think that's how we came up to describe the unit of an image instead of using objects, but using proto-objects. And we segment proto-objects by the algorithm that I came up with, which is an unsupervised way of, of segmenting the image into visually similar regions. And that method also, of course, has its specific qualities. For example, um, it's fast and it's accurate and how it can be applied to different things. And then we also applied the proto-object methods and the idea into more of a human visual modeling side of things. And that includes, for example, part of the research we were also doing was to understand how humans understand object categories and how humans look for things on an image. And as part of that work, we were trying to define how we learn a new category and how is a category object being represented. By that, I mean, for example, if you go into a supermarket today, if you have never seen an object category that's called dragon fruit, you've never seen dragon fruit before, but now you're in a supermarket and you see a bunch of dragon fruits in front of you and you're learning on the spot. You're learning, oh, so this is what dragon fruits look like. They look like kind of green and red. They have petals of leaves protruding. They look kind of like rounded shape and there's a certain size and they have a certain texture. So that's what you would learn to form an object representation of what dragon fruits look like inside your brain. So the reason why we kind of look at that is because we want to understand how humans form this representation of object categories, and then we'll be able to understand how we look for a certain thing because we're then using your mental model of that certain object category to search for something. And we found that, you know, when you're learning a new category, unlike AI methods, like today, if you're training a detector, you're training, you have to train a detector to learn from both positive examples and negative examples. But, but for humans, a lot of times we learn only with positive examples. In that dragon fruit example, when you're looking at all those dragon fruits in front of you, you're not thinking about this is dragon fruit because this doesn't look like a chair. You're not comparing dragon fruit to some negative example. You're just thinking, you're just forming this mental template of what dragon fruit looks like using just the positive examples. And that's what ultimately came out of our work that we called the category consistent features, because these are the features, visual features that describe 
this category. For example, red, green, round shape, protruding petals that defines dragon fruit. And then we can then kind of use that computationally to also represent what the category look like. And that way, there's a lot of different use cases. For example, training a detector, then all we need is to use positive examples by finding the common features that describe that category. So a lot of that is re relevant to category consistent features, total object segmentation, and that was kind of the idea of my thesis. I see, yeah, very interesting. Just curious, like, had this research been applied in the real world at any instance? No, I and mean, that's why I'm doing a startup because I didn't want to continue doing research where things happen on paper, but nobody actually uses them. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah, we'll talk about that uh, in a few minutes. You know, when research your profile, I believe that during your PhD, you also gained practical internship experience. More specifically, you spent a summer at Riverbed Technology, improving their the application efficiency, and another summer at Shutterstock, experimenting with deep learning models for problems such as text-to-image mapping and face detection. What were some of the valuable lessons that you learned from these internships? As PhD students, we often have to go on internships in the summer to kind of gain additional experiences and to see how we can apply what we have learned in the real world. I think the biggest thing I learned at my internships were that things move a lot faster in the industry than in labs. I felt that during my two to three months of internship, I achieved a lot more than a year of my time uh, in my lab. So that was one major thing I learned. And the other thing was just, for sure, when you're working in a company, it's a lot more collaborative than when you are doing research on your own in a lab where you kind of just work on code on your own, work on idea on your own. You may have colleagues helping you, but really you're just on your own most of the time. So yeah, for sure, working in the industry versus in the labs are quite different. Speed of execution and then the collaborative collaboration yeah. is like a bit perfect. Now, after finishing your PhD at Stony Brook, you spent uh, one year as a postdoc fellow at the Cognitive and Neural Organization Lab at Harvard University. There, you have investigated and developed a neuro-inspired deep conversion neural network model called MAPCNN for modeling human early visual information processing. Yeah, so, you know, would you mind kind of unpacking the design of this MAPLA architecture? Right. So after my PhD, I was deciding what to do next. And I, at the time, I was very interested in continuing through academia. So I applied for a postdoc position at Harvard, and I was fortunate to have gotten the opportunity to work there. And I, so therefore, I continued working on the type of brain-inspired computer vision focus. And at Harvard, my work was to try to build a deep learning network that was as closely designed to the human visual cortex as possible at a higher level, meaning we try to understand how the neurons are organized in a typical human visual cortex. And then we built that organization as an architecture principle of a deep learning network. And that's opposite to today's deep learning because today, when we're building deep learning networks, the goal is to maximize the accuracy. But at Harvard, our goal was to maximize the similarity of the network's architecture to the human's visual cortex. Um, and then based on that architecture, we'll train the network to see what result the neural network would have. Maybe the accuracy would be even better. Maybe the accuracy would be worse. We don't know, but we wanted 
that effectively becomes our brain model at a high level to see what kind of information network would learn. And, and that's what MAPCNN was about. Yeah, perfect. You know, I believe that at Harvard, you also collaborate with, uh, you know, cognitive vision scientists in applying deep learning methods to modern different aspects of human visual perception. Maybe looking back or maybe even looking forward, right? For some of the up and coming researchers, what research areas at the intersection of computer vision and cognitive vision would you recommend them to explore? I think it's really based on interest. Some people, I think most computer vision scientists actually, they don't have a lot of interest in human vision. But I do think that there's a lot of interesting aspects of human vision or cognitive science that can be very useful to computer vision side of research. So I would encourage people reading up some of the work, relevant work, just to broaden their horizon. Also, just for it may open up different ideas for them to try. Let's say you know if they want to get speed up on cognitive vision, what are some of the introductory resources that you would recommend? So there's a lot of cognitive neuroscience books that they can read. And really, I think it doesn't take too much. It really, if they are a computer vision uh, scientist, then ultimately the emphasis should still be on statistical machine learning. But reading up a book or two on cognitive neuroscience should already be very helpful. Thanks for sharing that. Now, in 2017, you co-founded FIRE Technologies with Jim Briscoe, a next classmate from IT, and Ivy Lee the next college from Shutterstock and uh, Fire's product enables AI power uh, augmented reality navigation for driving. So can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Right. So when I was at Harvard, I think one big thing was that I realized was how hard it was to drive in Boston because Boston's roads and traffic was so complex that when I was driving and while reading Google Maps of Waze, I oftentimes still made wrong turns because the 2D map, even though it's telling me to make a certain turn, but there were just 10 different roads intertwining each other on that 2D map. So I'm driving, I try to read that map. I had no idea where that road is supposed to be in front of me. I just made wrong turns all the time to a point I got so fed up. I feel like, why am I still trying to read this 2D map? It's so 15 years old. Why can't someone just show me a live video feed of what's in front of me and overlay my route directly onto that feed so I know exactly where to go rather than reading a 2D map because my phone was already mounted with a camera facing forward. And that's when I realized, hmm, my background is in computer vision. Why don't I just try to build that on my own rather than waiting for somebody to build this? That's when I thought that's an interesting idea that we can build a company around because it's really coming from a real pain point that I was facing. And also when I got into a lot of Uber trips at that time, they also made wrong turns quite often because they didn't understand what the 2D map is telling them. So yeah, so that was the main idea why we started the company. I think, you know, Uber and Lyft still make drivers still making wrong turns these days. So that's definitely a, a pain point that needs to be improved. Yeah, I'm just curious, how did you choose, you know, your, your co-founder? What are some of the decisions that you make in order to collaborate with? Yeah, so, so I knew James quite well. James was and longtime friend of mine from college. So I've always wanted to do something with James. At that time, I was at Harvard in, in the Boston area and James happened to also be in the Cambridge area in Boston. So we reconnected and I pitched my idea to him. He thought it was interesting, so we teamed up. And Ivy was uh, is also a good friend of mine from Shutterstock. We were colleagues when I was an intern at Shutterstock. 
And I remember, I always remember her as a very dedicated engineer, very good at what she does. Therefore, I also thought about recruiting her because she was also very interested in deep learning AI related technologies. And therefore the three of us teamed up to, to work on this together. Yeah, I see um, very importance of like maintaining this professional relationship. So you, and you never know like who, who might be on that you might team up with in the future, right? So it's important to keep those connections open, even if sure. you, you know, move on. Fire is developing an ultra lightweight special AI engine that allows any vehicle to perceive its surrounding using a camera that can run in real time at the edge on a commodity automotive computing platform. Uh, what are some of the big technical challenges that you encountered this far in building such an engine? Right. As we were building AR navigation, and originally we wanted to build it directly on a smartphone because we felt that no matter what kind of cars you drive, as long as you have a smartphone, you can use our application. But then we realized what we're building is actually self-driving without driving the car. What I mean by that is, imagine if you're able to overlay AR route onto the video feed that is conforming to the lane at which lane you're supposed to drive onto, then if we have control of your car, we can technically just drive your car to follow the path that we have planned for you in AR, and that's self-driving. And therefore, for AR navigation, we're not driving a car, but we have to do everything else before that for self-driving. And that includes spatial understanding, road understanding, knowing which lane you're in, how many lanes there are, really estimating how the car is moving, your heading direction, your speed, and everything. And also planning out the path in front of you. And that requires a lot of perception, road understanding, in order for us to then compute what your path is supposed to be in front of you. And to make all that work on a smartphone-grade processor was unheard of at the time. Because smartphones, while they're powerful, they were not meant to support cutting-edge deep learning-based processes. Because most deep learning AI, they require GPUs or multiple GPUs to run. And even that, they may not run in real time. And that's why with my background in efficient computer vision, we started really focusing on the technical side of enabling AI navigation with a very powerful AI system that can understand the road, but at the same time, being very, very efficient. And that's why we had to build the lightweight spatial AI in order for us to use that AI to power our AR navigation as a product. I see. I'm just curious, like, how do you collect enough data? Yeah. I mean, data collection is not tough. It's more about labeling. So we just, we drive around, we collect data, and then we, of course, get third-party uh, labeling services, such as Superb, to help us label the data. Perfect. Yeah, I see. All three of you, you, James, and Ivy, is there a specific role for each person or, you know, someone? I'm just curious about the team dynamics, I suppose, at that stage. Yeah. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I, even though my background was in computer vision and machine learning, but because the product idea and everything came from me, and therefore I'm, I've been the CEO of the company, and with Ivy and James being the technical co-founders, helping more hands-on on, on the technical side. So that's um, the main split work. Perfect. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I watched a video last year on the YouTube channel of Fire, and essentially, your team presents some of the key features of a complete visual mobility platform, including things like automobile integration, augmented reality navigation, digitized environment, smart parking, third-party integration, and uh, reality as a service. So yeah, can you uh, unpack some of these key features in further detail? Sure. So 
as I've mentioned, our current product is AR navigation for driving. And we actually switched from smartphone-based application to automotive facing last year because we found that the cars are coming out with bigger and bigger screens, which would be great displays for AR navigation. And also that the car makers themselves were already looking for AR navigation to be shipped in their vehicle. And given that, what we have been working on is AR navigation inside the car as a software. And also the AI engine that powers AR navigation um, itself as a separate product. And that AI engine is what we call visual mobility platform because we want that AI engine to be used by developers to build their own applications on top of it. Very similar to Unity, where Unity is a 3D engine that you can build 3D games using it. So we want to allow people to build visual applications using our AI engine. And that can include many different use cases. And that's why uh, we're also very excited about that opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for sharing that. It's a very unique example of how, how you can you know, make the product more accessible to potential developers and users. As we talk about the product roadmap, most recently, I saw that file release a demo showing ultra-efficient monocular depth estimation AI that runs efficiently on a mobile phone and achieves that accuracy on the uh, benchmark Kitty dataset. Yeah, so can you share a bit about this capability and potentially hint on some of the feature roadmap of the product? So monocular depth estimation is very, very important to us because in order for us to build AR navigation to overlay onto the world, we really need to understand the 3D structure of the environment in front of us, including all the moving objects, how far away they are from us. And the 3D information can help us also to implement um, occlusion effects. So make sure AR elements can look like they're behind something or in front of something can make things look more realistic. And that's why monocular depth estimation is very important because it provides us with a 3D information of our surrounding to us using a single camera. And traditionally, monocular depth estimation is also very costly to compute. Because of our know-how in efficient AI, we're able to build our own monocular depth estimation that is very efficient, that can run on device in real time and still offer very, very good accuracy. So we kind of want to show that as a demo where Fire's capabilities are. And of course, that's very important in terms of supporting our AR navigation as a key technology. And, and is there any focus more in terms of the future roadmap? Is there any other capabilities that you know, you're looking to explore? Sure. So the depth estimation itself is not really part of the product feature. It's more part of our AI engine that powers our AR navigation to be more accurate, more realistic, and higher fidelity. Okay, gotcha. And I'll be sure to include the videos into the show notes so you know, people can have a chance to watch and then see how that capabilities look like as we discussed in the conversation. Let's take off your researcher hat and put on your founder hat. Faya went through the Y Combinator incubator in the summer of 2018. What were the most valuable lessons that you have learned as a founder from the experience? So, YC was very hands-off, actually. We only had a weekly dinner, and the mentors did not have regular sessions with, I think, I don't know, actually, there was a regular session, but it wasn't very often. Most of the time, YC wanted us to focus on building our product and book office hours when we need to. So it was interesting because I was under the impression that they're going to provide us office space and other things, but there was nothing like that. 
that's okay. I think we learned a lot through the process and also gained a really valuable network um, as part of YC Founder. That was also very important. How useful those, the network has been for you throughout the company building journey? Oh, super useful. So we can ask all sorts of questions in the network forum and really get a lot of founders perspective in terms of how to approach, how to solve, how to look at different things. Mm, I see. Talking about, you know, going to incubator, right? I think another important part that YC taught a lot of these technical founders is the process of fundraising. Fire raised initial seed round led by Northwest Venture Partners and the Venture Relief Fund back in November 2018. You know, just kind of looking back on that experience of fundraising, what advice could you give for founders who are seeking the right investors for the startups? Well, I mean, as a first-time founder, everything was a learning experience for me and for us. So I think... We don't know anything. There's just no prior data points for us for anything. And therefore, I think the most practical advice I would give people is just kind of soak in all the experiences that you've been through as the first-time founder because all of that will be very helpful for your next venture. But in the meantime, it's important to create a company that's from a real pain point and to create a scalable business. And make sure that the product you're building is something that people actually want to use. These are the very general takeaways, I would say. Yeah, I'm just curious, like, how do you know that this is the right investor that you want to partner with for the long run? And uh, Okay, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, when I say I don't know, that means I have no data point. So I think it's, as a first-time founder, it's, it's whoever is willing to invest would be the right investor for you. <laughs> and if you're lucky to get multiple term sheets, then you try to do your due diligence by getting references about investors. But again, because you know when you get references, everybody say positive things anyway. Like you never know unless until you actually work with the person. And that's why if I were to do it again, I still wouldn't know how to choose the right investor or if I'm able to even choose. It's more about after you work with people, you'll then learn about, oh, how to work with different people that became your experience. Um, and then you'll be able to know what to do better next time around. Yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Dive into uncertainty and then just execute, right? We talk about collaborating with investors, but obviously, like another big thing to running a digital startup is to find the right clients. In late 2020, I saw that there was a post where Panasonic announced a collaboration with Fire to expand driver safety and navigation support in its automotive solutions. In general, like what have been some of the strategy that you found useful to identify the right client partnerships for Fire? For us, because we are a very small company and a small startup. Therefore, it's very important that we partner with, we try to partner with more established names by providing our value to them. And at the same time, they can help us with their maturity so that that can really help us in becoming a more reliable vendor to our customers. It's definitely not easy to partner with big names such as Panasonic, but for sure, we have to show that what we bring can be very beneficial to a partner and ensure that working with us also saves them a lot of time and a lot of cost. And that way we are truly a value add for them and vice versa. That's definitely very important. I'm just curious how many conversations you have in order to even like nail like one single deal. It really depends on industry and also different scenarios, but it for sure takes months, months and months of, of conversation and 
demoing to ensure that the trust is there, that they believe we can do the stuff that we claim that we can. Definitely take a lot of hard work. Yes. <laughs> Hiring is another critical responsibility of any early stage startup father. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Fire's mission? Ah, uh, hiring is so hard. I don't think, to be honest, I don't think I've learned how to say this. I think I have learned the reality. That's about what I can say. The reality is, as a startup in the Bay Area, it's never easy to hire, especially if you're hiring for AI within the talents, because You have Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix next to you, trying to grab the same type of talent. And most of the time, when the talent is very good, you know, even if they have a lot of passion in your company, ultimately, when they do get offers from these big companies, which they typically do, the numbers just can outweigh any of their passion in in startups. We just have to. I think for us, we just have to really cast an extremely wide net to find those very few people who are just extremely passionate in startups to be willing to take the chance to uh, to work with us. And of course, we believe tremendously about the future potential of our company. It's just making others to believe similarly with you uh, takes a tremendous amount of passion from them. Because of the big companies competing against the same against us for the same talents. I see. Yeah. How do you actually like find those people who are extremely about startups? So I think we work with recruiters, but also we have to do our own cold reach outs on LinkedIn, on different job posting sites, and network with friends and friends of friends. All sorts of different approaches that we have to try to spend time on. I see. Yeah. And even relying on some of your previous experience right? with yeah, for sure from the East Coast and and YC, I suppose does help right. Some, some right. From your answers on some of this question about startup operation, right, the fundraising, hiring, and collaboration, it seems like those are a lot of work. So I'm just super curious, like in your day-to-day operation as a CEO, how much time do you spend on on the business aspect, and how much time do you spend on actually building the product on the technical side? Great question. So it really depends on the stage and the phase your company is in. During our C, I spend most of the time on the technical and product side. But after the C, now that we're in Series A, in fact, if even before Series A, we have to start looking at the business side, getting traction, and that's when I start to migrate from the technical side into more heavily business, which is a very interesting uh, transition, and I've definitely learned a lot through this process. And throughout that transition, do you have any mentors or do you have any like college who like? inspire you or you learn from? Yeah, I think you just learn on your job. And also our lead business development um, team member, he came from many years of business development experience. So um, him being with us, provided a lot of his background, knowledge, know-how experience to the team on the business side. See, yeah, it's very important to, to have people with experience doing that before. Yeah. So finally, thinking about your experience in both academia and in industry, What do you see as the differences and similarities between being a researcher and being a founder? I think there's definitely a, some similarities, in, especially in terms of problem solving. As a researcher, 
our job is to, is to solve a problem with a new approach that can give you even better results than before, all in a limited time because you have to publish within conference deadlines. So I think that means we were trained to be very conscious in terms of time management, organization, priorities. We have to be able to know what to prioritize on and still be able to finish something within a time limit. It's a lot like, like the cooking show chopped. I'm not sure if you've seen those cooking shows where you have 30 minutes to come up with a dish and the judges will give you some kind of surprising ingredients. And there's always issues that arise during that, that competition. You, maybe something's broken or something was bad or something is not working. You just burn your food, but the time is still ticking. You still have to just make sure you deliver in, mm-hmm. in a timely manner. And that's the same for research. And ultimately the same for startup as well, because you have limited amount of funding. You have to deliver. Doesn't matter if you have enough people or not. You have to just figure out a way to make things work. And I think that's where it's very similar to research. And the difference is then there's, of course, more than research. There's the business side. There's the operational side. There's the different side of things that, as a researcher, you don't need to take care of. So it's, uh, it's been a great learning experience for me. Yeah, I assume like startup is probably like much, much harder <laughs> than research. Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I, I will say so, yes. <laughs> Perfect. I love that analogy you talking about cooking show. That's a great way for the listeners to understand, you know, how I truly feel like. So tramping at this for our conversation, I want to move on to the final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions, and you can give um, quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the computer vision community whose work you admire. I want to say Fei-Fei Li, Yan Le-Kun, and Yasha Benjo. Yeah, very, very big names. Number two, Name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. Great question. There was a book that I read. I think it's called From Zero to One. It's about, like Nate suggests, how do you build out a company from scratch? Yeah, Peter Thiel's Zero to One, the startup Bible. In yes. Valley. <laughs> um, and then lastly, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the academics who want to turn into early stage father on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I think I would tweet something that says, make sure your company is about a pain point, not just finding a solution for your technology. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great way to kind of cut our conversation, kind of reflecting throughout your whole career and some of the learning you learn. So Shanping, I really enjoyed our conversation today, learning about your early upbringing, moving from Taiwan to the US, your experience at RIT, Penn State, Estonia Brook, doing cutting-edge research that intersects between computer vision and cognitive vision, your time at Harvard working with cognitive vision scientists, your journey with FIRE thus far, ranging from developing cutting-edge AI power AI, AI navigation for driving to some of the more business-oriented lessons in terms of fundraising, hiring, and finding the uh, right client partnership. I'll be sure to include everything in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look and learn more uh, about you, about the fire's journey, and some of the things that we discussed uh, today on the show. I uh, have a great time chatting with you, and, and hope to see more of the product announcement from Fire in the future. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Well, 
that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.